please turn into your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5. And we stand, as is the uh, biblical tradition found in Nehemiah 8, to honor God's Word. Because God's Word is given to us inerrant and infallible and sufficient for all that we could ever have or need in life and godliness. So therefore, we reverence it as such. So follow along with me as I read Ephesians 5, 22, 23, and 24. Hear now the inerrant word of God. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would guide, that you would direct, and that you would bless the preaching of your word despite the grave fallibility and sinfulness of the preacher. Would you remove the distraction of humanity, then would you speak directly and would you speak clearly to us as your people? Lord, we come thirsty for the water of living, eternal life. We've been all week bombarded by lies and by nonsense, by busyness, by the ordinary things that need to be done in order to just survive. And we come now weary and needing an eternal word. We come also with hearts that are racked with sin, despite our being declared righteous in Christ by repentance and faith. We still have the inner man, the old self. We ask that you would subdue that, your spirit amongst us, that we might hear clearly these words that we know just by reading are exceedingly unpopular in our day but that you might give us the true sense, the true essence of what it is to apply these three verses. We ask this humbly, but we know that we can expect that you would honor your word because you said in Isaiah 55 that when you send it out, it doesn't return having accomplished nothing, that it is like, exactly like rain, that everything that it hits, it makes wet. So please do that with your word today. We ask humbly in Christ. Amen. It is the preacher's temptation to, at this point, make a joke, to cut the tension. But what I want to do is ask, why is there tension? For the past few decades, why has there been so much tension around this passage? Why do church members dread this text being preached? Why do preachers get nervous when it comes up? How have these three verses, amongst all of the verses in the scriptures, become a no-fly zone? In the sense that uh, a no-fly zone is a land, an area where you can't fly planes over. It's a forbidden zone. What makes this passage so unique that many pastors and preachers feel obligated to apologize that it's in the Bible at all? Why do normally confident communicators suddenly become like panicking teenagers asked to give an oral report on a book they haven't read when this text comes up. 
Why is that? What is the threat that this text poses to those who simply believe that it means what it says? What are we afraid of when this text comes up? I think we know. The answer of what we're afraid of when this text comes up is angry, screeching women who have the full support of the culture behind them. There's nothing else to be afraid of. That is what we're afraid of. That is what makes preachers become cowards and begin apologizing for Holy Scripture. That is what makes church members get too nervous to show up on this Sunday. Not that anybody who's not here, that's their reason. I'm not throwing them under the bus. Now, if you don't believe me, let's just consider an example. Uh, the difference or the disparity between Mother's Day and Father's Day sermons. Now, you've never heard a Mother's Day or a Father's Day sermon here because every single first day of the week is the Lord's Day and we do not give to men what is meant for the Lord. However, you have heard them in the past. And what are Mother's Day sermons always like? You, you all but deify every woman. It is all fluff. It is all good. You hand out carnations. You talk about moms. You demand that everybody, in a sense, worship them. And then what are all Father's Day sermons like? You guys are lazy. You guys are pathetic. You don't lead. You don't do anything. You're just a selfish loser. And why is that never reversed? Why is it never fathers thank you for leading and protecting and providing and proving self-sacrificing and wives and mothers? Why are you all into your, your mommy wine culture and gossiping and yada, yada, yada? Why, do, why is it never that? Why is it that we, we hammer and verbally berate fathers and husbands, but we never speak clearly to wives and mothers? It is because... We know that our society is completely out of step with the Bible on this point. We know that society is out of step with the Bible on a lot of points, but it is obvious that this point is completely out of step. And we subconsciously believe that the thinking of the women in the church is lockstep with the culture. Now, that's not true of women of the word. That's not true of women in our church. But it is true and is the presumption of many. Therefore, we believe that if we preach what the Bible clearly says on this, what will happen? We'll be mobbed by angry, screeching women who have the full support of the culture behind them. And the average evangelical church doesn't want anything to do with that. I was listening to a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. If you don't know who Rosaria Butterfield is, you should look her up and you should read everything that she writes. She was uh, on a podcast promoting a new book that she had written, Five Lies That the Church Currently Believes, and it's a fantastic read. Um, and she said this on a podcast. She said, Satan's biggest window into your church. She's talking to pastors. She's a pastor's wife in, uh, in North Carolina. She said, Satan's biggest window into your church is its most unhinged woman. That's what she said. So to avoid looking like cowards, what many preachers will do or churches will do is will flip the narrative. They'll just say, well, this text we know has been used to abuse women in the past. And so we feel that therefore now we have grounds to ignore it or maybe modify it or neutralize it in some way. And yet nobody does that with Ephesians 6 verses 1, 2, and 3 about children and parents, even though by the all authorities concerned, the vast majority of child abuse happens by parents. 
So we don't throw that one out, but we do throw this one out. And the twisted misuse of scripture is never a reason to delete it from the Bible. Satan's number one grift is to just twist the word of God. That's what he always, that's what he did with Eve in the garden. That's what he did with Jesus in Matthew 4. Just twist the scripture, use it because they believe it. The abuse of biblical authority is what's here. It does not give us license to reject the clear teaching of Scripture. If it did, then we should stop where we are in our series and skip to chapter 6, verse 10. Because 522 through 6-9 is a, a threefold look at relationships that almost everybody is involved in and how they work with authority and following and submission. Having no leadership structure is not the right response to experiencing a wicked leadership structure. Although we get told that's what it is. In God's wisdom, though, he put the most socially flammable relationship first. He didn't start with kids and parents. He didn't start with slaves and masters. He started with wives and husbands. And if we can get a strong grasp upon this concept, the the biblical marriage It will help us understand, and particularly starting with wives, it will help us understand husbands and children and slaves and masters. This one's going to be the biggest hurdle for us in our day because there's been three full waves of feminism explicitly campaigning against it in the English-speaking world. And because it is the first institution that God created, that is marriage, that marriage between one man and one woman for life is the building block. It is the, the basic most reducible unit of any successful, prosperous society. As goes marriage, so goes a culture. See also the United States in the past 60 years. As goes marriage, so goes the culture. And that's been true throughout all of history. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three verses under just three headings. We're going to look at the, the three, these three verses are first, simple to understand. Secondly, that they are difficult to receive, and thirdly, that the glory of Christ is at stake. So let's just define terms as we look at that this, these three verses are simple to understand. The key word there, the one that we're all keyed up about is be subject, or if you have a, an ESV or a New King James, King James, or NIV, it says submit. That word is the Greek word tasso, and it means subject oneself, be subordinated, obey. It was used of Jesus as a child, Luke 2, 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection, there it is, to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. It was used of creation at the fall, Romans eight twenty. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It was used of, in reference to unbelief, Romans ten three. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves the righteousness of God. It's used in reference to government and citizens. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And it's used in reference to Christ's sovereignty. Ephesians 1, all the way back months ago. Ephesians 1, 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So this word means exactly what it looks like it means. There's no hidden definition that makes it somehow different. It's very clear. It's very plain. It's also connected to, 
in verse 22, as to the Lord. It's the same thing that slaves are told in Ephesians 6, 5, same thing the children are told in the earlier verses. It's also connected to verse 24, in everything. Because we live integrated lives. We don't live compartmentalized lives. God is not commanding just in these parts, but not in those parts. No, it's a totality of who we are in our, the roles that God has given us, particularly here speaking to women. And we know that scripture ubiquitously condemns the antithesis of this. Ubiquitously condemns. Ubiquitous just means it's everywhere. Let me just read you a handful of examples condemning wives who do not do this. Proverbs 19, 13. A foolish son is destruction to his father and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Proverbs 21, 9. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Proverbs 25, 24. It is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil in his right hand, meaning it's impossible. And then you get to Luke 17, 32, a verse that we might not associate with it, but it just says, remember Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do? She did not follow her husband who was finally following God. She rebels and she's turned into a pillar of salt. So now here's what we're gonna do first. Now we know what terms are. Now we know what the Bible says about it. We know that there's no way around the plain teaching of scripture. Let's talk about first what it is not. I'm gonna give you a handful of reasons of what biblical submission in a marriage from a wife to a husband is not. It is not, first of all, genetic inferiority. We read Proverbs 31 for a reason. What were things that were in that? Let me just give you a clip and starting in verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles. Some translations say she laughs at the future, opens her mouth in wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. We're talking about a woman who can handle things. Her children rise up and they bless her. And her husband is praising her, saying, many daughters have done done nobly, but you've outdone them all. You've exceeded them all. So what his submission is not is some kind of genetic inferiority. No, this woman is smart, diligent, strong, and capable. Submission is not easy, but it is a noble assignment from the Lord. Secondly, it's not mindless slavery. We're having to undo all of these uh, uh, feminist bumper sticker slogans. It's not mindless slavery. If we are pictured, as these verses say, husbands and wives are like Christ in the church, what did Jesus tell his church to do? Did he tell them to constantly pray? What about Luke 18, one? Now he was telling them, Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. When you are praying for, to, who are you praying to and what is your prayer going consist of? Requests, Lord Jesus, please do this thing. And then what does he go on to do in these parables? We're not gonna have time to read them. As he says, here's examples of never stopping. Now it's not nagging, but it is persistent. He says, come to me with your desires, church. Is what the husband, Christ, says to the bride, church. So the same must be true of a wife in marriage. Come to me with your ideas and your thoughts and your plans and all of these things. So it is not mindless slavery. Thirdly, it is not an erasure of personality as if 
You're supposed to become some kind of uniform drone. God doesn't call anybody in his kingdom to be a uniform drone. Neither does he call wives to be. Just compare Sarah in Genesis to Ruth in the book of Ruth to the Shunammite woman who goes nameless but is a massive impact in 2 Kings and then compare them to Esther and then compare Esther to Elizabeth at the beginning of the Gospels. All different kinds of personalities and that's on purpose because Psalm 139, 13 through 14 doesn't stop being true when you get married if you're a woman. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are specifically handcrafted by God. This is not a call to an erasure of your personality. It's also not a call to all women to be subject to all men. What does it say in verse 22? Your own husband. Verse 24, their husbands, nobody else, just that one. And the same is true, you can think about it, with Christians with, as looking for churches with elders. Because what does Hebrews 13, 17 say? Obey your leaders and submit to them. You don't submit to, as a Christian, every elder or whoever's called an elder in your general area. That's why church membership matters. Who am I going to do this with? That's why we have a church covenant. Who am I going to covenant and say, these elders, I'm going to follow God's command underneath. Same is true in marriage. If, if there's a major impetus then on parents and churches assisting our young ladies in choosing a husband, more on that later. And lastly, what it is not, what these verses are not saying is that wives are obligated to follow their husbands into sin. The text for that is Acts 5. 28, 29. It's not about marriage, but the principle remains because this is true in every relational structure that has authority and submission. The Pharisees say, or the Sanhedrin says, we gave you apostles strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. No authority ever on any level has the right to enforce you to sin. The same is true in a marriage. Wives are never obligated to follow their husbands into sin. So that's what it's not. Well, then what is it? The scripture's full of differing roles and responsibilities. Look at, you look, think about a James 3.1. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Stricter than who? Stricter than the people who are not teachers of God's word. If you sign up to teach God's word, then you are signing up for a stricter judgment. God is okay with that. He has instituted differing roles and responsibilities. You can think about in a narrative sense, in the book of Numbers, there's two big rebellions against Moses, chapter 12 and chapter 16. In chapter 12, it's Moses' brother and sister. In chapter 16, it's Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Both instances, those people are saying, Moses, you're not better than us. God speaks to all of us. All of us are able to be exactly what you are. And what does God do with Moses' sister in chapter 12? He strikes her with leprosy. What does he do with Abiram, Korah, and Dathan in chapter 16? They get swallowed up by the earth. So God is saying, clearly, I have structure for leadership and responsibility. Just as God has decreed various amounts of wealth, talents, health, etc., to different people, so he has decreed different roles and responsibilities, and he alone is free to do so. None of us are. 
So this is an imperative for wives to willingly subject their wills to their husbands. It is a call to acknowledge the roles that God has made in marriage. Now, differing roles does not mean greater or lesser value. That's another lie that we are told. This devalues women. It means instead that God decrees order and not chaos. This is what John Stott said. He says, submission is a humble recognition of the divine ordering of society. That's all it is. Because if it is connected to value, you have less value. If you're the one called to submit, then all of us have less value. Because no matter who you are, there is some dynamic in scripture upon which you are called to submit. The only one who submits to no one is God. Whether you live in a society, Romans 13 is gonna call you to submit to the government. If you're a child, you're gonna be called to submit to your parents. If you're an employee, you're gonna be called to submit to your employer. Everybody has this call upon their lives. And if you are a church member, you're called to submit to your elders. Does that then mean that you have less value than me? You should rise up and say, absolutely not. And if I ever say that, you tar feather me and then go throw me in the street because I do not have more value than anybody else in the room, in the church. So this is not a a statement upon value. So then why do we believe the lie that it does in marriage? And here I'm gonna posit that the reason is, is because you have been catechized by a feminist culture that says if a woman can't be or do everything that a man is and does, she has less value. That's what we're told. So you fight against this text because you feel like you're fighting for your value as a person. But sister, you already have all the value that God intends. And filling the submissive role in a marriage, it displays that. What does Proverbs 31 say in verse 10? An excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels. First of all, an excellent wife, they are in short order, says the Proverbs. Secondly, if you find one, that's the most valuable thing you can find. So you have value. And then verse 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Isn't it ironic to see in the same verse, fearing the Lord and praise for yourself? Doesn't necessarily, doesn't it usually go together that fearing the Lord means I'm praising the Lord, but the scriptures say here that fearing the Lord, this wife, this wife pictured in Proverbs 31, she's to be praised. She has this value. There is no concurrent chapter, by the way, for husbands in the Bible. There is only one like this for wives, just as a side note. Next, what it implies, these verses imply that a leadership structure exists and it calls for one party to submit to another party. That presupposes several things. If you have any kind of leadership structure in the leadership cabinet, in the leadership level, one party submits to another party, what does that imply? It implies three things. Both parties are involved in the leadership and decision-making process. Secondly, it implies that conflict is inevitable. Thirdly, the submissive party willingly does so. It is not a coercion. It is not a forcing. So husbands and wives are clearly both involved in the organization and functioning of a family. When there is agreement, submission is not necessary, right? 
if the, this command only exists because there will be disagreement. The, in order to move forward, God has provided a structure to resolve that. So don't overlook the fact that this imperative in the scripture implies disagreement. Of course, it's difficult to apply this text. It only comes up when there's a disagreement. That's the only time it's there. So of course, it's conflict. That's difficult always. And then lastly, under the heading of, it's simple to understand. I don't want to leave this without explaining why it's grace. Why is this text grace? Because it gets, it gets, it gets uh, postured and proposed as shackled. Why it's grace. What happens when leadership is undefined and yet a common goal still needs to be achieved? Have you ever been a part of that? Have you ever been a part of a group that has a self-declared leader that's not a leader? You're thinking of jobs, you're thinking of teams, you're thinking of HOAs that you've been a part of, and some person just declares themselves the leader. Does that go well? And when they're not a good leader, and then it becomes clear we got to get a new leader, does that go well? It never does. God created marriage and the family as the building block of humanity. As goes marriage, so goes the society that it's in. And he laid out exactly who does what role. And it's the same for everybody everywhere. It's not like, well, this is the American version, but if you go to Australia, you get that version. And if you go to Thailand, you get that version. If you go to Nigeria, you get that version. If you go to Ukraine, you get that version. Same for everybody everywhere. There's no confusion. There's no guesswork. There's no rivalry. There's no jump balls. You know what a jump ball is? You play basketball? A jump ball happens when the two opposing players both dive on the ground for the ball and they both have the ball and it looks like there's an equal claim to the ball. Referee can't decide whose ball it is. So he says, all right, stop, blow the whistle. You stand there, you stand there. I'm gonna throw this ball up in the air and whoever gets it, it's their ball. That is not what God has done with biblical marriage. Every wedding is not a wife, a bride and a groom standing for the minister and he just says, here we go tosses it up. Whoever comes down with the ball, you're in charge. That's not what he has done. So clarity, what is clarity equal? Grace. We look at the Old Testament law and it certainly was a burdensome thing in some ways. But if you're coming out of slavery in Egypt and you have no idea, you have nothing written down, you have no Bible, no nothing. You got one guy in your whole people group who speaks to God when he comes down from the mountain, you could be like, oh, thank goodness. We finally know what to do. We finally know how to be right with him. We finally know how we can be right when we've made sin divide us. It's grace. Clarity is grace. God graciously explains the roles of husband and wife repeatedly and clearly because he's being gracious to us and he intends our flourishing. Remember, don't lose chapter one in chapter five. What does chapter one, verse six say? to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has freely bestowed on us, all of us in the beloved, in Christ. Everybody has been bestowed grace upon grace in the church. So we move now to the heading number two. It was simple to understand, but it's difficult to receive. I'm gonna give you seven reasons why this text is difficult to receive. Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
God sovereignly chose to allow the fall to affect men and women and creation differently. That's what Genesis 3, the end of the chapter is about. It affects those three entities differently. The fall warps all of us individually. You don't have the same sin struggle that I have. And I don't have the same sin struggles that you have, but the fall also warps us categorically. Men and women and creation. From the garden forward, men or women rather to varying degrees have an innate sinful desire to control a man. Men to varying degrees have an innate sinful desire to let her control him. Wives are warped to commandeer leadership in marriage. Husbands are warped to abdicate leadership in marriage and just say, do it. The reality makes, that reality makes us receiving Ephesians 4, 5 rather, 22 through 24, difficult. Second reason why this is difficult to receive. This is one of the most frequently avoided texts in the scriptures. And there's a handful that go together and I'm gonna read them to you and then move on. But I don't want it to be said of anyone in this church that you've never heard that this was in the Bible because there are plenty of texts and these are among them that if you just got into the average church in the Western hemisphere and just read them out loud, you would have a riot. You don't have to preach it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to get into the Greek about it. You don't have to really give it the gusto and do any of that stuff, have illustrations. All you have to do is read it and people will lose their minds. That can't be true here. So we're gonna read them and then we're gonna move on. These are the no-fly zones. Colossians 3.18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper, or the ESV says, shameful, for a woman to speak in church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4 is the last one. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now that we're all sufficiently triggered, we're moving on. No comments. Number three, this is against the current of culture. That's why it's difficult to receive. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because you know it. But here's the underneath uh, currents. The culture says equality equals being identical. If I'm not identical, then I'm not equal. The Bible does not say that. The culture says a woman has no value if she can't be or do everything that a man can be or do. Hence the abortion epidemic. Because a woman cannot be as promiscuous as a man if she can't kill the result of that promiscuity. So she has to have that in order to be equal. And three waves of feminism have seen to this. You only have value if you sever yourself from biblical roles, says the culture to our ladies. You're looked down upon if you are just a wife and mother. That's the slam in any sitcom that features a prominent female lead when you're joking about somebody else like, I think you'd make a good wife and mother. Like that's the most pathetic thing that you can do. Any teenager can keep kids alive. That's what we're told. 
and independence, self-reliance, write your own story, those kinds of things. That's what's being praised by the culture. Fourthly, this text, why it's difficult to receive, it's become a breeding ground for Trinitarian error. See, some women won't hear this at all unless they are given some extra reason. And so there are camps out there willing to give those kinds of women an extra reason by saying, well, here's something that you need to pay attention to because when Jesus takes on flesh, as we just sang in Heart the Herald Angels sing, that he took on flesh and then he's eternally, functionally subordinate to the Father. So what we're going to do in order to placate you so you can't be mad at me, I'm willing to get in the Trinity and cause division there and say that one member of the Trinity is less than the others. That's an actual camp that exists. So just so you can go, okay, well, if Jesus is doing it, then I guess I'll do it. As if that's what we needed. This text is not enough on its own. Fifthly, actual abuses. This is real. We've, if you've been around for longer than 25 years, you've seen waves go through the church, stuff like the Gothard movement and other things where you actually have men taking these texts, immature morons going, ah, honey, submit. You have that. You have that happen. That's ex- that exists. And you have other things where it's just complete dominance, treating her like like an animal, less than a child. We know that those exist. They're not excuses for ignoring this text. But however, we know that it does make it harder to receive, especially if you've experienced it. If you grew grew up that within your home, you've seen it in other family members, or you've experienced it yourself. It does make this a difficult text to receive. Sixthly, this is also innately difficult. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 28. This is not preached at most weddings. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Check and check. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Was that your sermon for your wedding? (laughs) Just so you know, you're signing up for trouble, and the Bible says it. And Paul's saying, look, if you were like me and just single, you'd be fine. But I'm trying to spare you. But if you do get married, it's not a sin, but you're going to have trouble in this life. That is a biblical guarantee. Can everybody in who's married go, oh, that's not really been my experience. <laughs> no, we know that that's true. Look at 1 Peter 5, or 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6, a continuation of the text we read earlier. He says, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, ladies, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Wait, 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 what's that in part there, Peter? What about this whole marriage thing is supposed to be frightening and I don't fear it? Why are we not making these clear? God commands women to do something hard upon getting married, flat out. The Bible's not embarrassed of that. You're being asked to do something difficult. The problem is we've sold marriage on the Disney princess package to all the daughters of the church instead of using the plain verbiage of the Bible. 
I mean, just ask yourself, are any of the young brides that you've ever been around, are they made to honestly think about the sober realities of what it means to be a wife according to scripture? Do we ever sit them down and teach them that? Or are they just asked what kind of wedding dress cut they want? Or are they just asked what kind of hairstyle looks best with their makeup on that day? Or are they asked, is your groom madly in love with you and does he make you his whole world? Does anybody ever stop to ask that young bride, do you know what Cod is calling you to do after this $30,000 party is over? Do you know? How hard do you anticipate it to be to submit and follow that man after this $30,000 party is over in less than 12 hours? And then seventhly, why it's difficult to understand is that women have a flesh just like everybody else. That's why the old man exists. Even if you're never a wife, you can't ever be in that category. You never end up in that category. See, we've believed the lies of feminism that there's something about women that there's inherently less evil than men. I believe that. I believe that growing up. Or, or, because what was, the, uh, what was the old nursery rhyme? Girls are made of what? Sugar and spice and everything nice. What are boys made of? Snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. And I'm around my buddies and I'm like, yeah, you guys are dirt bags. And they seem really clean over there, the girls. So that, that makes sense. And then I get into teaching and I teach, I start coaching and then they hire me full time to be a PE teacher. And now I'm having a deal with teenage girls, like junior high girls. And I'm like, okay, y'all seem, y'all seem all right. I mean, I'm around these boys all the time. They smell horrible. They can't think past an hour and, and they disobey everything and they can't show up. They get in trouble. They get detention, all that stuff. And so then I'm like, okay, I got this squared away. That, that nursery rhyme is making sense. I see it now. As a newlywed myself, I got married and realized, ah, you are way nicer and better than me. I could see that pretty clearly now, thinking that that was inherent to all women, not just God's sanctifying grace in my wife's life. Then I had the veil completely shredded on a field trip to San Antonio. Overnight field trip, and we're loading up the bus. I'm the only bus driver at the school. And we're getting on the bus and they're talking about, you know, we, we prepped beforehand. The principal was coming with me. And so I'm like, that was good. Principal and other parents and stuff. But he was like the other man that was with us. And it was an overnight thing, going to San Antonio, going to see all these things. And as they're getting on the bus, one girl's dad says, hey, just take her phone away from her now. This is back when phones were beep, boop, boop. They weren't screens. They had buttons. <laughs> And he said, just take it away from her now because there was a threat that they could get taken away. And I was like, ah, Mr. Moore, your daughter's gray. We're not gonna have to worry about that as I sit in my bus driver's seat. Then we go, we're going down the road and I'm like, all I'm gonna have to be worrying about is these boys. These boys are, they're idiots. I'm gonna have to be walk. So we get to the river walk and there's a certain owl themed restaurant that I'm having to hide them from and say, go, go, go. Don't, boys, don't look at this, keep going. Thinking, okay, that's my battlefront right there. Then the principal and the other teachers, they come and say, hey, we got to go and confiscate all the girls' phones. And I'm like, well, why do we have to do that? Because they've been, you know, saying bad stuff and texting each other and doing these things. And I'm like, no, they haven't. I have them in PE. They're good. They obey. They listen to me. They follow. I'm not worried about any of this. Well, you guys are overreacting. And I had my world shattered in the gift shop of the Alamo picking up all those phones and then reading those texts that had to be beep-booped all the way through. I mean, this is stuff I'm feeling low self-esteem, reading these texts. And they're about other girls. 
This was the most cutting, biting, evil thing that I'd ever seen in my life. It was horrible to go through. I can never go back to the Alamo again because we lost it twice. But the reality is of why this text is difficult to receive is because wives are sinful just like everybody else. They have an old self like we read about in chapter four that has to be put to death. They have to put on the new and take off the old just like everybody else. So then lastly, we look at what is all of this for? The glory of Christ. For as, verse 23, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Is there anything any topic, any realm that is more monumental, more at the zenith, at the pinnacle, at the height of everything that we believe than Christ saving the church. And that is what the Bible has connected marriage to. And we're gonna get into it in a massively heavy way when we get to husbands next week. But what is at stake in every Christian marriage? It is beyond clear from these three verses and the rest that will come in 25 through 33, the glory of Christ. That's what's at stake because the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. Do we recognize that? Genesis 2, 22, the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the beginning of the Bible. And the Bible ends, Revelation 19, seven. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. That's why we wear white at ladies at wedding, wear white. It's a symbology of that. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is a chief illustration that God has chosen for his relationship to his people. He started out with it in the plainest, simplest sense. One man, one woman, they're the only ones that exist on the planet. They become one. And then you see it all wrap up at the end with Christ and the church. The glory of God is at stake. Submission is not as unto him, that man that you're married to. It's unto the Lord. A wife's submission has very little to do with her relationship to the husband and far more to do with her relationship to Christ. She glorifies Christ more than her husband when she subjects her will. This is why Peter can say that submitting to an unbelieving husband is even glorifying to God. I mean, I think to even be called to do that, what is the motive? The glory of God, the glory of Christ. So we have then a duty to our daughters in the church. See, part of the reason that this passage is so difficult is to swallow is because we have married off unthinkingly so many of our daughters to shockingly unworthy men. Men given to vices, given to apathy, 
given to abuse. And, and we believed we progressed past the trope of daddy cleaning the shotgun while boy comes in to ask daughter if he can go on a date. Ah, we're past, we're past all that. But young lady, we have so many young ladies in our church. I just want to say one thing specifically to you. When scoundrels and fools and sluggards come sniffing around you, send them packing. Don't put up with them because a life of heartache awaits for you trying to obey God's word in that relationship. But pastor, what if he doesn't deserve it? What if he isn't living worthy of it? Well, let's just change that question. You're asking the wrong person. I'm just a bugle. This is the voice. So you need to say, but Bible, what if he isn't worth it? What if he doesn't deserve it? To which the Bible says, now you get it. See, now you're asking the right question because this isn't primarily about your relationship to some man, some image bearer, some creature from the dirt. This isn't about that. What is it about? It's about verse 22, as to the Lord. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives. To even if you were married to the apostle Paul himself, he would rarely merit this level of subjugation. Rarely. So it is with every single relationship. Children are being asked to obey parents that they believe are perfect, but we know we're not. Slaves, meaning employees in some context, are being asked to be obedient as to what, verse 5 says, as to Christ. All of this, God is very well aware that nobody deserves this level of submission. Nobody. No human is greater than any other human. No human merits the allegiance of other humans on their own. In no way. But God has seen fit to structure leadership. So we submit because of who Christ is and because what he's done, not because of who that man is. For Romans 13, 1, there is no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The very glory of God is at stake in our marriages, as it's in stake in every part of our lives. The point and the purpose of your marriage is to glorify Christ. The point and purpose of your marriage is not companionship. It's not division of labor. It's not happiness. It is not even procreation, but it is rather to glorify Christ above all. Christ is the point of your marriage. He's the purpose of your marriage. Your marriage role as a wife, your very womanhood has one purpose above all, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's true no matter what role you're in and no matter what gender God gives you. Now we're closing. I know we got many questions left. There's so many things that we didn't touch on. Things like biblical divorce, actual abuse. We didn't get into any of that. We just took the text as it was. We will address those someday in the future. But there's also a whole lot of, I'm assuming, lingering, yeah, buts or whatabouts. We'll get to those. We've only done half of the equation. We've only done one half. And it only has three verses. Look how big the next section is. It's going to be a, a bigger section coming. We'll resolve some of those, hopefully most of them next week. And this is going to be the only one of the relationships, Lord willing, and if the plan continues, that we take in two parts. We won't do just one on children and just one on parents and then just one on slaves and the rest. 
But wives and husbands, marriage is so critical and it is so under fire that, that seven or eight years ago, our, our country just completely disintegrated it into law in every state. We needed to take the time to do this. But as we close, I wanna just revisit the opening question to set us up for next week. And the opening question, what I asked was, why does this text make us so afraid when it comes up? And the answer was, angry women. But after meditating on it all week long, I've never had a text rattle around in my brain for so long. And, and even when we started Genesis or Ephesians 1.1, I knew 5.22 was coming the whole time. And after meditating on this week so much more intently, I think I want to amend the original introduction. M- amend meaning add a, a secondary statement to that we're afraid of this text also because of the expansive weight and responsibility that it places on husbands and consequently upon the raising of our sons. Because if we can make verses 23 to 24 not mean what they clearly say, then angry feminists don't come and get us and the pressure is off as husbands. We can continue to allow our sons to progress into adulthood as man babies and just say, well, it's just being like Jesus. He's just a big soft pillow. And it conveniently becomes biblical for our men to be perpetual adolescents. See, if we can defang verses 23 through 24, then our sons never have to develop into men that are 25 through 33. They don't have to handle the word. They don't have to stand firm against the world. They don't have to mature into Christ-like leaders. They don't ever have to learn to love and lead like Christ. But if verses 22 through 24 do in fact mean what they say, parenting boys becomes intentional and pointed discipleship because the mantra, boys will be boys, has to die if these verses mean what they say in verses 22, 23, and 24. If a woman is going to follow you, young men and children are going to rely on you, you had better be pursuing Christ with every fiber of your being. But that's next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, a text like this, if we are honest, it is unwelcome, even in our own hearts. We don't like it. We don't want to deal with it. We wish that it weren't this way, Lord, to even have the audacity to wish that your word says something then it doesn't. We ask it for your forgiveness. We ask that you would, for all of us, because all of us felt the tension coming in and maybe there is even lingering tension now. Lord, we ask that this would not cause any kind of, of harm because you don't put forth your word. It has no harm. We know that it is a, a sword, but it, and it does cut. <laughs> but it's like a scalpel that cuts out tumors and cancerous growths, and we are the better for it. May that be what happens with this word. Lord, we also know that there are many women in our church who have experienced very painful, miserable, sinful, and wicked leadership. Father, would you watch over those souls? Would you watch over those ladies? Would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? Would you let them know that their church rallies around them? Lord, we know that there are many young people that are in here today that are associated with our church or come to our youth group and are preparing for for marriage, are, are moving in that direction. 
Father, would they know what it is that you have called them to? Would those young ladies know that? Would they see the task at hand? Not that they would come into marriage with doom and gloom, like this is some kind of miserable situation. Or we know that it is a good gift. We talked about that earlier in chapter five, about the blessing of marriage and that you gave it to us even after we sinned in the garden. You let us keep it. But Lord, may these young ladies know the high calling, the high calling that you've issued for them. And may we as their church, and more importantly, would their parents come into their lives, surround them, equip, disciple these young ladies so that they might fulfill this role that you have not hidden the difficulty of. That is a difficult thing to do. But Lord, you call us to do a lot of really difficult things. You call us to die to ourselves. You call us to look strange in our cultures. You call us to not trust our instincts. You call us to renew our minds. You call us to ask for forgiveness and repentance of people that we don't think deserve it. On down the list, Lord, this is just one of many things that you call us to do that are difficult. So we know and we make sense of Jesus's admonition that if we're not willing to pick up our cross and follow him, that we're not worthy of him, that we pick up our cross daily and follow Christ. And that cross was not a small piece of jewelry. We know that it was an instrument of execution. It's a call to come and die. That's what it is to be a Christian, Lord. And we, we buck up against that. And so would you, would you massage this truth deep into the hearts of our ladies? And would you prepare the hearts of men to hear your text next week? Well, we know there's a crisis on both ends and we know that the concept of gender at all is in crisis in our culture. Help us to stand firm and keep us from sinful extremism. Help us not to swing the pendulum to so far to the other side because we see such dereliction uh, in the society and even in the churches. May we never be marked by extremism but may we be marked by being men and women of the word. That we measure everything that we do by the word. We walk by the word. We know, 1 John 5, that your commands are not burdensome. We know from Deuteronomy 31 that this is our very life, the words you've given us. So may that be true for all of us. Lord, we ask that you would let the truth of these verses be what people take out of the room and that you would not let anything uh, ungodly or not God word that came from the preacher stay with people. May it only be your word and whatever was spoken that was not of your word, let it not linger in anybody's ears, but only the truth that you have given us unvarnished straight to us by the delivery of your spirit. We ask that you bless us as we go throughout the rest of this week and as we finish this worship service. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen.